good to be here. I've had a really good weekend. It's been a bit of a different weekend. On Friday morning, I experienced something which is a very modern phenomenon, a wedding uh, reception brunch for a wedding that happened a couple of years ago overseas that nobody could go to because of COVID. <laughs> so it was a good time, really good. Good to finally be together um, with, some, with some dear friends. That was really good. Secondly, uh, the same day was uh, Julian, uh, my 27th wedding anniversary. Um, Julie, the love of my life, thank you for tolerating me for all of those years. Uh, and third highlight was um, this morning, um, as I was just printing out my notes and getting ready for um, this sermon, uh, Harry, my six-year-old son, uh, got the felts and the electric glue gun out and made me a fox. Isn't that great? It's double-sided. What a weekend. <laughs> hey, so the series that we've been um, working through is Behold. Uh, various ways to look uh, at the Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Uh, And today we're going to be thinking about the messenger, and the messenger, uh, in case you're not familiar with some of the the origin story of the arrival of Jesus, is John. The messenger is John, otherwise known known to us as John the Baptist. We're going to be thinking about John the Baptist uh, this morning. Uh, It's a sermon which looks at three passages of Scripture, Uh, And each of those passages is spoken by three different people. The first is spoken by the angel Gabriel, the very same angel that gave the message to Mary. Uh, The second passage is um, spoken by Zechariah, who's the father of John. Uh, And the third passage is a sermon that John preached. We're going to work through those in sequence. But first of all, the backstory: Uh, The nation of Israel had endured 400 years of radio silence from God this rich history of thinking of themselves as God's people, destined for God's blessing and for God's kingdom. Um, But instead, they find themselves, yes, in their homeland, but ruled by a foreign nation and not a single word from God through a prophet for 400 years. Um, One day in the temple, uh, Zechariah, who was an old priest, went to the temple to perform his priestly duties. Now, Zechariah was married to his wife, Elizabeth. They had been married for a long time, but were childless. Elizabeth was described as as barren. Um, And they had spent their entire married life together praying for a child uh, to no avail. So that's the setting for for Zechariah turning up to to the temple one day, entering the temple to perform his duties, going into a very private room in the middle of the temple, when nobody could see what was going on. There was a crowd gathered around outside, but nobody could see what was happening inside the temple. Uh, And the angel Gabriel appears and speaks to Zechariah. And this is the first passage um, that we're going to read. The clicker doesn't seem to be advancing the slides, Greg. Are you happy just to click those on? Thank you. So the first passage uh, is... um, The message of the angel, let's read it together. It's found in Luke 1, 13 to 17. So the first thing that Gabriel says is, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit 
and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I wonder if you're in Zechariah's shoes for a moment, thinking about what an encounter like that would have been like, the encounter itself, let alone the content of what it was that, Zechariah, uh, that, that Gabriel said to him. So this is completely out of the blue. As I said, there's been 400 years of silence since the last prophetic word, and all of a sudden an angel appears to an old priest. You'll have a son, old man. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, these are great promises, something that that Zechariah must have marveled at. But there's more to come. Gabriel tells Zechariah that his son will be in the business of turning people's hearts. There are not many images that are more evocative of love than um, a parent with a child. If the definition of love is that it's the thing that drives you to do anything for the other person, even at your own expense, then the relationship between parent and child should epitomise that. A parent provides for, cares for, and would protect their child from anything. We also see the strength of this image from completely the opposite perspective. If a child is lost, or if the relationship between a parent and child is estranged or broken or absent, then we are heartbroken. So, when we hear the angel of God predict that Zechariah's son will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, he's addressing a situation prevalent in Israel which is the absolute worst uh, of things. Parents' hearts are turned away. They don't love their children. At a fundamental level, this short phrase describes something that's terribly, terribly wrong. But the prophetic mission of John is to come and address that, to turn that around, to induce hearts that have stopped loving to love again. That's one of the um, aspects of um, the ministry that John is to be involved in. There's another phrase there uh, that follows immediately after, to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. This phrase makes the same point as, as the previous one about parents and children, but with different language and setting. It, it uses the language of the origin story of Genesis and the discourse of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs. The origin story is, is in the Garden of Eden where we see Adam and Eve influenced by the snake, choosing their own path in disobedience to the Father who created them. And... Although it's cast as an origin tale, we all find ourselves at that same juncture, on a disobedient path, relationship with the Creator broken. And all of the biblical story, from the first word to the last, and all of our own lives, is about the journey of our hearts turning back, of choosing the right path, the wise path, that leads back to Eden, the restoration of relationship with the Father, the place that we all should be. 
So John's got quite a task ahead of him, if that's what he's to accomplish. But John's task of turning heart is not to be an end in itself. He's doing it all in the preparation for someone who's to come. We move on to the next, um, the next slide. Let's get rid of you. Ah, we're live. The second passage that we're going to look at this morning is the prophecy of the father, the father being Zechariah. So nine months has passed. Elizabeth is indeed with child and she gives birth to a son. Now, as a result of Zechariah's distrust in Gabriel's promise, throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah was unable to speak. He was mute. Um, but at the birth of the child and at the naming ceremony of the child, uh, his voice comes back. Uh, and the first thing uh, that he speaks uh, is a prophecy, a prophecy to do with his son. Now, I've been at the birth of, of four children that belong to me and a number of others in my professional capacity. Uh, that <laughs> That don't belong to me, and I've, said some, I've seen some weird and wonderful things in the delivery suite, but I've never heard anything quite like this. The prophecy of the father. This is what Zechariah said when his son uh, was born. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, which, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's quite the speech to give after nine months of silence. There's two quite distinct aspects uh, to the prophecy that Zechariah speaks, and as we read through that passage, I wonder if you spotted them. I'm going to go back to the first, um, to the first part of that passage. Firstly, that God himself has come to his people and that good things are going to happen as a result of that. The good things are that God will redeem his people, God will rescue and save his people from their enemies. Now, redemption and redeem is, uh, is a word that's common in the Bible, but it's a term that's used today in much, much different ways than is meant in the Bible Today, the only, uh, the only definition that I could think of with regards to redemption is that we redeem a voucher or we redeem a coupon. It gives us a discount. 
That's a very bland use of the term redemption. Because in the, in the scriptures, redemption uh, refers to a benefactor or a wealthy person paying a sum of money, sometimes a large sum of money, to secure the freedom of somebody who is either in prison or in slavery. That's what redemption means, the payment of a price to secure freedom. And the idea that God would redeem his people uh, is steeped in Old Testament uh, prophetic tradition. Uh, an example of this, Isaiah 59, 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. That's the, um, that's the prophetic term for the nation of Israel. A redeemer will come to Zion to those who turn from their sin, declares the Lord. This idea of God redeeming his people is not something that the nation of Israel were unfamiliar with. The idea of redemption, the idea that God would save Israel from their enemies, it speaks closely to the national identity of the nation of Israel. They were a nation chosen by God so that he could bless them, and through them, blessing flow to all nations of the world. But because they turned their back on God, his blessing was withdrawn. And as a result, they've been, the nation of Israel have been stuck in this terrible repetitive cycle, a nation of slaves in Egypt, redeemed, only to be exiled to Assyria and Babylon, and then redeemed, only to be ruled over and dominated by Rome, desperately waiting for redemption. And so although God has shown himself to be faithful in redeeming Israel sequentially, clearly something dramatically different needs to happen to break this endless, joyless cycle of imprisonment and slavery. So while redemption and salvation is portrayed at a national level, the second aspect uh, to Zechariah's prophecy is directed much more, direct, uh, much more specifically towards his newborn son, John, and it seems much more personal. John, you will give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. The second point here seems to flow on from the first. God himself will in some way redeem and save his chosen, his chosen nation, Israel. And John, your role in this is to start this process off leading individual people to the forgiveness of their sin. But for this to happen, hearts need to change. From stubborn, self-interested hearts to soft, open hearts that are prepared to acknowledge the train wreck that is within and are prepared to ask for help. And in doing so, the foundation is laid for the Saviour who is to come. And what a salvation it will be. That last stanza uh, gives a description um, of the nature of the salvation. It will be as brilliant and life-giving as the sun rising from heaven, shining warmth and light onto those who are entrenched and imprisoned in darkness. It is sun salvation. Baby John grows up, and at around about the age of 30, he emerges from the desert, which is where he spent the majority of his time growing up, uh, and he preaches. 
He comes to the people and preaches. And this is the third passage that we're going to look at, the sermon, uh, the preaching of the prophet. We're going to read this from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, just before we go on, can we just pause on this weird and random point? Who the heck cares what his clothes are made of? Actually, uh, the prophet Elijah, to whom John uh, was compared, is described in the Old Testament as being dressed in the clothes made by the hair of a camel. Um, John has come in the spirit of Elijah. He was also wearing the same clothes. People went out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. In the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. So we've heard from the angel, we've heard from Zechariah, that the mission of John the Baptist will be to preach a message that will change people's hearts in preparation for the one to come. And now we hear from John the Baptist himself, and his message, as is recorded by uh, the Gospel writer Matthew, is simply this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So first of all, his call to people was to repent. And the meaning of repent is... um, is to change one's life based on a complete change of attitude and thought, especially concerning sin and our relationship with God. It's a call to change our lives. And how he motivated his listeners to this change of heart and life was by telling them that the kingdom of heaven was near. To a Jewish listener, this is a phrase dripping with hope and significance because Despite their own repetitive national history of kingdom failure, their scriptures held a record of a dream sequence from a young Israelite exiled in Babylon at the time named Daniel. And in this dream sequence, this is what he saw. Daniel 2.44, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
So when John the Baptist preaches that the kingdom of heaven is near, the Jews who heard that message knew exactly what he was talking about. They might not have understood how it was going to unfold, but it was very familiar language to them. To think that after 400 years of silence, a prophet emerged from the desert and was announcing the closeness of that longed kingdom was irresistible, and it proved irresistible to the vast majority of all the people who listened to uh, his message. They responded in droves. Many repented. Many uh, changed, uh, changed their hearts and changed their lives based on the message. And based on their repentance, to symbolise it, John baptised them in, this, in the River Jordan. That symbolic gesture of placing somebody underwater and then out of the water as a, as a movement from old life to new life, a, a movement from an old way of thinking about things to a new way of thinking about things. It doesn't leave, it doesn't, the passage, though, doesn't finish on sweetness and light, does it? The last few verses uh, in this passage in Matthew, um, we read a record of John the Baptist speaking so harshly to the Jewish leaders who came out to see them, and he called them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist invokes for his listeners that origin scene that we've already mentioned at the tree in the Garden of Eden where it was the snake that prompted Eve to disobey God and hid her, on a, uh, hid her away from her distant path of wisdom and life and down a path that lead to death. And John the Baptist identifies the religious leaders with the snake. In describing the leaders like this, we're not left in any doubt about who the enemies are that the people need salvation from and, and the end that will come for those who oppose the love and the work of God. And so this is the story of John the Baptist. 400 years of radio silence, an angelic visitation, a prophesying old man and a preacher from the desert with a message. Someone great is coming. Turn your heart around. The kingdom of heaven is near. The someone great to whom John, to whom John pointed was, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. And the message of repentance that John preached in preparation for an encounter with Jesus is unchanged. When we come to Jesus with that repentant attitude in our heart, with a genuine heart that is ready to acknowledge our own sin, that desire to turn around and that desire to, uh, or that, that, that need, that absolute need of him, then he performs that work of redemption. He provides uh, the cost that is required to purchase the slave to sin and death that is me and to grant me freedom and new life. And in doing so, brings me back into communion with the Father. That's the message of John the Baptist. And that offer is as open today as it was 
when it came from the lips of John the Baptist. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we read through the entirety of Scripture um, a long and detailed and sometimes confusing story of how it is exactly that you propose to interact, to love, and to bless your people. It's such a messy story because at every point and every turn and at every generation, there's messy people. We have this longing for things to be so much better than they are. And that longing is as unchanged uh, through the generations as we are messy through the generations. But there is an incredible spark of light as we read the story of John the Baptist, as we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus, because we recognize in that story that you are finally bringing an end to the dreadful place that we've found ourselves in. You are providing a way for us to be back in close communal relationship with you. And what it requires from us is a change of our hearts. And so Jesus, uh, as we speak to you now, as we stand uh, before you, we, we open our heart and we pray that you would enable us to just acknowledge all that it is that we need to turn away from, to repent from that and to turn towards your loving arms. Father, we bless you that this message of old is as relevant and as fresh and as needed today as it ever was in the past. We bless you for Jesus, the fulfillment of this story. And we pray that that these repentant hearts that we offer you would go on to produce fruit in keeping with repentance that lives would be worthy of all of the goodness that you have showered us with. So, Father, we bless you and we honour you. And as we continue to worship you uh, this morning, I pray that that worship would come from pure and clean hearts and that it would be acceptable and good to you because we pray it in the great, um, in the great name of Jesus. Amen.